This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Other Loves All Flee One Family's Journey from Legalism to Grace by Leona Cohen Nichols, who joins me from California. Leona, welcome to the program. Thank you. Your book is autobiographical in nature, but it reads like a fictional novel in some regard. It's it's very, uh, I guess, well done, and you have uh, placed your wording in a way that's easy to read and also draws you into the story. Share a little bit about the Holdman Mennonite group, which is where your family grew up and uh, where you spent your time as a, a young childhood. Uh, share with us who the Holdeman Group is, the Holdeman Mennonite Group. Well, the Holdeman Mennonite Group is, as far as I know, the, the most conservative of all the Mennonite groups. Uh, e- even in appearance, other Mennonites, you know, look normal, dress normally, but we have restrictions. Uh, in the Holdeman Mennonite Group, they can on- only uh, wear, for instance, the women particularly, um, uh, need to wear dresses. They need to have a head covering on, and the men are required to wear a beard. It's not optional. Um, women cannot wear uh, jeans or slacks or, or uh, shorts or any of those kinds of things. And uh, preferably, uh, you know, uh, the very um, simple dress, simple pattern of dress. Everything is home sewn. Uh, the dresses generally have uh, long sleeves or three-quarter sleeves. Um, uh, at home, short sleeves are okay, but never sleeveless. Uh, you know, there's a lot of little details like that that you almost have to grow up with the Holdemans to even uh, be aware of. But uh, let me just tell you a little bit about how it started, and that was uh, John Holderman was a uh, Mennonite from, I think it was Mennonite Brethren, I'm not 100% on that, uh, who decided that the church had fallen into decay, and he felt that he was called sort of as a prophet, I guess you'd say, to reestablish the true church. And um, so he, uh, after, I guess, trying to convince the ministers in his church that they, they needed to make some major changes and return to the faith of their fathers and uh, not getting any positive responses from them, he, he left and decided to start his own. And this happened in uh, 1859 is when the beginning of the church uh, you know, began, and uh, <clears throat> for quite a while he did not pull in anybody <laughs> uh, of all the people that he would visit and tell them, you know, he was starting the one true visible church, and if they did not uh, join and become members, they would go to hell, uh, and he didn't get very far with it, but in uh, 1874 is when so many of our ancestors came to this country as immigrants, and uh, even though we are Dutch by uh, background, uh, our people had um, had um, moved, uh, uh, emigrated to Russia, and just like as in America, they wanted their claims settled, the, you know, the country, 
uh, outside of the cities and all of that. So our people settled in these on these plains in Russia, mm. and uh, and uh, lived there for about a hundred years because they they got a uh, an agreement from the Tsar to not be conscripted into the army. Uh, one of the main principles with all of the Mennonites is anti-military uh, service. Uh, they will serve, uh, you know, as my husband did. I think I wrote that in the story. He, he served two years in, uh, as an aide in a psychiatric VA hospital in lieu of military service. So uh, that they could do. But anyway, the new czar came, did not uh, um, uh, reaffirm that old commitment that he had made to the Mennonite people. So they began to move uh, to immigrate to America. And both my um, my uh, grandparents on both sides, my mother's side, my father's side, immigrated with that group somewhere in the uh, 1874s. Well, of course, for John Holdman, uh, this was uh, a, like ready-made people for his church. Because Absolutely. many of these people were unlearned and were not um, uh, educated. Uh, probably many of them did not read or write. Some did, of course. Um, but uh, here are these people, and what does he do? He meets them and says, tells them, if they want to belong uh, to the one true visible church and be saved, then this is what they needed to do is to join. So then, uh, of course, more people begin to join. And I, I'm sorry, I, I forgot to find out how many there are today, but today there are thousands. But it was very slow in the early uh, time of building this church. And still still thousands today, and their fellowship is yeah. exclusive to the Holdeman group. I mean, it does yeah, not it does not spread yeah. over to the Baptist or the uh, Methodist or uh-huh. anyone else that claims their faith. Oh, they are very adamant that you do not call anyone else a Christian uh, because they haven't received the right baptism and uh, they are uh, haven't been approved by uh, the 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 committee that or, or the, the ministerial staff that the would say whether or not they are authentic or not. Yes, some yes. of the Mennonite groups are committed to German in their worship services. This particular group does not uh, hold to that. No, no. When I was a child, uh, we still had uh, a, a number of ministers who would preach in German, but. There were so many already, even at that time, that did not understand German. Uh, but but uh, my husband's father, uh, Samuel Nichols, uh, did uh, frequently preach in German in his younger years. Um, but, you know, um, they would always say, you know, it says it's so much clearer in the German Bible. <laughs> you, you did, of course, your native language always makes more abs- sense. Always too. makes more sense. The, the Holdeman group did embrace some of the modern conveniences uh, you had a you oh, had yeah. your family did build a, a five uh-huh. bedroom home at one point as you were uh-huh. a, a, growing up uh-huh. and and I'm, I'm sure electricity and other conveniences were a part of oh, that yes 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 in fact is that they feel <laughs> there's a certain sense of superiority i guess you feel they would feel uh, that uh, uh, would say, you know, we uh, we uh, have promoted the essentials of the Christian faith, and we haven't gof- gone off on some of these traditional things. But in the meantime, they built their own traditions, and uh, uh, you know, there are the, are the traditions of outward appearance, 
And then there are uh, the tradition of no musical instrument of any kind, no recorders, no TVs, no radios, no cameras, no photos. That's always been hard for me. I don't have a single picture of any of my beautiful oh, babies. <laughs> that's sad. You you went to school or attended school, and if I may mention this, you don't look it in your photo, but you attended school in the 1940s elementary school. Uh-huh. And because of the traditions of the church and the concepts that they had espoused, education was not high on the priority, especially with young ladies. Oh, my goodness, no, no. Unnecessary, and that leads to pride. And, uh, and of course, I tell the story in, in my book about uh, when I was a junior and we were having our yearly revival meetings, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, I will be 16 in November. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I will have to drop out. And it was devastating for me. I had always been a good student, loved school, big reader, all of those kinds of things. And here I faced something that was almost unbearable for me. And yet when we made the decision to do it, my friend and I on the same day, she was very happy to drop out, and I cried all day. Mm. Did your parents <laughs> but, <laughs> your parents supported this this move then this uh, dropping out of school? Pardon? Your parents supported oh, your dropping out of school. They supported it, but did not really make an issue of it. Um, I did not know until later that my mother, you know, um, who was born in in uh, 1904, had gone to high school at Merced, the neighboring town for uh, almost a year and was made to drop out. She told me later, she said, Honey, I cried every time the school bus went by. Hmm. So, uh, you know, the thing about the the Russian Mennonites is there were the pro-education and the anti-education. And the pro-education came over to this country, and they established schools and colleges and various things. And I know that my... My high school counselor, when I was getting uh, in my senior year, said, he said, Leona, why don't we see about getting you into one of the Mennonite schools, colleges in Kansas? And Mm. I said to him, you know, our Mennonites don't even think those other Mennonites are Christians. And so that wasn't even an option. What was the inspiration behind writing and telling your story? 170 pages. It's well written, I might add, for my listeners. Uh, you'll enjoy it. It, it. it comes across as a uh, a little house. Well, a little house on the prairie may be stretching it a little bit, but it's it's <laughs> a uh, it's a it's a fun me, it's a fun read in in many respects. You know that surprises me. So I never thought of it that way. But we do live even today. We live a rather simple lifestyle, but. Um, you know, uh, as time progressed, uh, right in the beginning, I knew it was too soon. I, I mean, that's probably the time it could have been written, and, and all of the details could have been uh, still included. But uh, as time progressed, I became more and more aware that for our children and grandchildren, uh, you know, uh, they needed the story. Because the truth is, my husband and I made the decision. Our children had basically no say, although our two older children were very much involved in, in the conversation. Our little kids, uh, I mean, Johnny was four when we were excommunicated. And, and uh, you know, we took them, uh, well, we didn't take them, but it, it was required. I mean, that they were then separated from uh, their Holdeman friends. 
and that was a very difficult situation. So we needed to let our, first of all, our grandchildren and our family, and then secondly, the uh, many ex-Holdemans that are scattered all over the community, many of which cannot uh, find a way to integrate into another Christian community. Uh, they are taught so strongly that before they die, they will have to return to the church and, and reactivate their membership, otherwise they will not go to heaven. Mm. And so uh, that's very strong. I just heard of somebody yesterday, a young man who is seriously ill uh, in another state, and say and, and uh, telling my friend, you know what, I I've got I've gone back into the church because I do want to be saved, and so that's a very strong push. Uh, and we want to kind of show ourselves as an example. We we left the Holderman Mennonite Church. Well, I don't know if you call it left, but we're put out, and um, and and we have reestablished in a church. Uh, let's see, we were excommunicated in '74. And we, then we visited several different groups, mostly in-home groups, because we are taught the ultimate sin is to attend another church. Mm. So uh, we, that was very hard for us. But So we, we met for almost a year in a church that met in a home. That was a transitional uh, phase for us. And then, um, and then we, uh, we started going to this church that met in the American Legion Hall, uh, New Life Christian Center. And... Um, we have been there since 1976, <laughs> very much a part of this church community. It is a non-denominational church and uh, fits our needs very well. And by the way, our little four-year-old Johnny is now an associate pastor. Oh, congratulations. So we have made the transition, which so many do not. And then the third category would be current uh, Holdemans who... Um, are in the church, but they're just kind of playing like they believe it, pretending to believe uh, some of the doctrines. And they do that because, uh, for the sake of their families, because, you know, it's not only a church, it's also a culture, and the culture has a very strong hold on us. You know, even, uh, even my husband and I and our two eldest children, as happy as we are to be where we are, we do we do feel the pull not not to go back and be a member there but uh, the ways that we were raised you know you can't be in something for 40 years and not have it be imprinted in every part of your of your life you know your thinking and everything so uh, there are many holdemans who are currently in the church who do not believe some or maybe several of the doctrines but do not want to go through the pain of severance from their families. Well, thank you for sharing your story. This is a, a fascinating read and is appealing to a broad range of, of audience. I think anybody, whether they're church-infused or not, would enjoy reading your story and, and your tale. The title of the book, again, is Other Loves, All Flee, One Family's Journey from Legalism to Grace by Leona Cohen-Nichols. Leona, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Where can my listeners get a copy of your story? Well, Amazon.com does carry it. I also have a website uh, for my other book, a poetry book called Quiet Things, Quiet Places, 
and uh, um, there is a website there, and I think both of the books are available possibly from that website. But Amazon.com uh, is where most people are ordering it. Excellent. Is there another follow-up book scheduled for the future? <laughs> you know, this writing stuff gets uh, kind of uh, in your blood. And uh, yes, uh, I, I, uh, poetry, of course, is one of my first loves. I am certainly working on another book of poetry. But as I'm studying more the story of John Holderman and seeing how and why he was such an influence, um, I suspect there will be a story there. It's a fascinating story and a fascinating journey. Thank you for sharing all of the wonderful insight. You were raised in a, in a comfortable environment with a home that was loving and supportive. So you didn't have that challenge, but you did have some others that you overcame. So thank yeah. you for sharing it with us today. Thank you so much, Jay. I really appreciate your, your um, uh, relevant questions. <laughs> My pleasure for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Guess Who's Eating Your Profits? That's the name of the book written by our author, Craig A. Whitfield. Craig, welcome to the program, sir. Thanks for having me, Jay. Appreciate that. Pleasure to visit with you. You're in Indiana. That's in the United States of America. You have a law enforcement background. You have also somehow attached yourself to the the food and beverage industry. Why did you get interested in food and beverage, and where is the source of this book and its material? Yes, I retired from law enforcement after uh, nearly 25 years, and then I was looking to do a transition from law enforcement into uh, an industry that would allow me to use my uh, uh, extensive uh, investigative background. And uh, so I hired on with a large, one of the nation's largest uh, franchisee restaurant companies. Uh, they operated uh, nearly 200 restaurants uh, across a six or eight uh, state span. And um, so it allowed me to continue doing investigations. And um, once I did that, I, I realized uh, that employee theft in the restaurant and food and beverage industry is uh, pretty much running rampant. Mm. And it's not just the food or the the beverages themselves, especially if they serve mixed drinks. That is a, a major loss, I think, from what I have heard. Absolutely. Uh, so it, basically what it ends up being is uh, there's multiple ways of stealing uh, the, the alcohol, the, the, the income from the alcohol, 
the food. Uh, there are so many different ways uh, that the, the bar and restaurant thief can operate that uh, it really takes a concerted effort to identify what they're doing and then how to fix the problem. And you also have, I'm sure, have, have run into identity theft issues in that industry as well. Yes, occasionally we do have that. Uh, there have been times, you know, where the, the credit cards uh, get compromised. Uh, uh, I'm a little bit uh, anal with my card now, just knowing that what, uh, what can be done with your card once they have the numbers and the card walks away from the table. Uh, so I always check my credit card when it, when it returns to my, you know, when it returns to my table, make sure it has my name on it because a lot of mm. times I've seen where the server will take a, an expired card uh, that looks just like yours and keep yours and give you the expired one back. So really? uh, uh, there's a lot of things that can happen. So uh, I'm, uh, there's just, um, I've kept on top of this and uh, tried to share a lot of my uh, concerns and how to fix the problem in my book. In the management side, which is where your book is directed, I think primarily, the manager's essential guide to restaurant and bar loss prevention and investigations. What is the first thing you have a manager of a restaurant, either an independent or a chain, look for? Well, typically something's going to bring something to their attention. So it could be something something as simple as uh, one of their associates comes to them and say, you know, tells them that one of the other employees is stealing. So I would instruct the manager to take a look at the exception reports, those reports that will identify um, me, uh, the, the different types of uh, uh, zero total transactions that this individual might be running on their, their point-of-sale system uh, on their checks. Um, look at your food cost variance. Uh, is, it, is it off? Uh, look at your alcohol variance. Is that off? If there's a variance there, don't assume that it's uh, overpouring on alcohol, uh, which is one of the explanations that I often heard when um, when there when there was a missing alcohol. Well, they're mm-hmm. probably overpouring. Well, they could be stealing too, you know, one ounce at a time in in the, in the uh, drinks, right? Right. Uh, or, or it could be it could be a situation where it's a food variance. Well, they, they a lot of times that's attributed to waste. So uh, again, maybe it isn't waste. Maybe they're no ringing the sandwiches and sending them out the window at the drive-thru at 3 a.m. Wow. Uh, and it's not waste at all. They're just taking the, the 6 or $7 from the value meal and putting it in their pocket and never running it through the, through the system. So there's a lot of things going on here. And there's also the possibility that uh, an employee may have one of their buddies show up at the restaurant and they comp them a meal or comp them a drink and, and not report that. Absolutely. That happens all the time. And I can't even begin to tell you how many over, over ten years uh, in that in the industry uh, uh, that uh, I you know busted people that were doing just that. Mm. I had a friend who had a retail establishment and tried to install video cameras because he was concerned about people that were uh, knocking down his till and taking funds from his uh, his profits. And uh, the employees got irate, and uh, he basically felt threatened and had to remove the video cameras. So what are you finding in the security end from that perspective, the video surveillance? Well, video surveillance is, is good, and I do touch on that in my book, um, that and along with like the backdoor alarms and things like that. Video cameras are good only if there's somebody that can actually watch them. Mm, right. So you have to have the time to review the cameras. Uh, you have to, you know, uh, a lot of, of course, now with today's technology, you can watch the cameras sitting in your living room, uh, you know, on your smartphone, you know, so 
you, you, can, you can do that remotely, which is good. So they never know when you're w- watching, per se, but the best way to have a, a camera set up in the, in the restaurant, the beverage in, food and beverage industry, would be to have um, point-of-sale overlay. So basically the, the, it's going to show the point-of-sale, the, the, the ticket, along with the video, what's going on at that moment. Uh-huh. So that gives you a different, little bit different view. So if, it's a little bit more expensive, but uh, it it um, it gives you opportunities to go back and um, review certain transactions as opposed to looking for a needle in the haystack. Would you say your first line of defense, if you are an owner of a business, is employee screening? Yes, yes. Uh, don't don't assume that um, because they're they're a good interview. Um, don't, don't assume because they're a good interview they're going to be a good employee. Um, and if you hear something, uh, once you've hired them, if you hear something negative about that person, don't assume or, or push back on the, the idea that they may be stealing from you. Uh, be diligent. Have an open mind. That's one of the things I think is most important for uh, a manager, owner, operator, is to have an open mind. Uh, a lot of times they've uh, hired friends, and friends will steal from friends. And uh, they mm. need to understand that uh, to, to make this work, they have to keep that total open mind and uh, just follow the evidence, so to speak. Uh, Craig, you've managed to pen 260 pages of vital information. How long did it take you to complete your book? It was about two years. Um, I, it, I spent probably a good two, between two and three years on it. I would work on it for a while. Uh, it, it really isn't something that I ever set out to do. Uh, so I, I just penned it over a two- or three-year period of time. Um, I, I would uh, walk away from it for a while, you know, clear my head, and then come back at it again. Um, but the, the genesis for this book actually began when I was given a copy of another book, a little thin little book written by a couple of bartenders, and uh, they told all the ways of, uh, that, that they could steal or you could steal uh, if you read their book. Uh, from the restaurant and bar that you work in. So th- at that moment, I realized, geez, there's all all this opportunity for the, the criminals to steal from the food and beverage industry, but now the managers, they need their own little manual uh, handbook that shows them how to deal with those people once they encounter them in the, in the restaurant or bar. Uh, chapter 7 deals with how employees steal. You have mentioned the bartender scam, which is uh, probably obvious to a lot of people who who are thinkers. The server yep. scams, what do the servers do that also causes some loss of revenue? Oh, servers, they can, uh, they can use coupons. Uh, they'll take a, a, lot of, a lot of companies now, they, they, they want to get the edge on their competition, so they'll, they'll print coupons in the newspaper or the, they call them the red plum coupons. And uh, so what they'll do is they'll come into work on the day that they're, that they're scheduled with a fistful of coupons that they mm. cut out themselves out of the newspaper. And they'll bring those coupons in, and they will apply them to checks unbeknownst to the guest. And if it might be a, a buy one, get one. So right. it, could be, it could be 10, 12 bucks. Amazing. Or it could be a birthday dessert, or it could be whatever. But if the guest doesn't know about it and the guest doesn't ask for it, they can take that cash check, and, um, and they can apply those coupons to it, and then they can just pocket the money. That's amazing. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Another thing they can do too is they'll just take that. Uh, they'll just take if they get their hands on the manager's uh, access card, the swipe card for the for the microsystem or the 
point-of-sale system. There's different ones, but uh, we use Micros in the industry I was in. Uh, but anyway, they'll take that manager swipe card. Well, that gives them the ability to void off the whole order. And so uh, what I've always told the managers is don't share your card because they're going to take that particular 30 or 40 or 50 or $100 check, and they're going to void it down to zero, and the guest is already paid. So now that's 100 bucks that doesn't have to be accounted for. Oh. They put it in their pocket. So they're... Uh, yeah, there are lots of ways, lots of ways. When you when you wrote this book, were you thinking of it as an extension of your consulting business that you could hand to your, your client list, or was this broader than that? No, it was broader than that. I, I just really kind of wanted to uh, give back to the industry uh, because I, I realized early on that going into the industry, you know, into the, the restaurants, that these managers are all very good at running the restaurants. However, they, they had a lot of challenges when it came to having an open mind to the point that they could actually think and believe that somebody is stealing from them. So I'm, I'm just trying to give back to the industry that allows them to, you know, here, take this book, take a look at it. Uh, it'll help you. If you'll read it, it'll help you. And um, it's just a way of giving back, really, more than anything, more than a consulting thing or anything like that. Uh, I, have, I do some consulting. But it's more about just having the book out there for uh, those that need it. Craig, were there some challenges in displaying or sharing this information? I, there, there may have been some pushback from some owner's management. I don't know. What would you? What kind of responses are you getting? Well, I'm getting good responses from those that have read it. Uh, the, the problem, the problem that I found so far is that uh, is that managers are busy. They work sixty to seventy hours a week. Mm-hmm. And they don't have time to read, uh, necessarily read a book. Um, so that's part of the challenges. Um, and then um, just getting it into their hands. So uh, I think, you know, ultimately I think this topic should be taught in the culinary schools, the, the, the restaurant hospitality schools that are out there. They don't teach you how to keep your profits. They just teach you how to run the restaurant. So if you're making, you know, uh, I don't know, a million dollars a year in sales in that restaurant, which isn't uncommon, in, especially in the box fast food restaurants. It's right. between one and three million. Four um, percent of that, figure it out. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of, that's a lot of profits. It's, uh, that, that money goes toward, could go toward, you know, freshening up the restaurant, doing something inside, buying new equipment. Hiring more employees, make your speed of service better. You know, there's a lot of things that that money could be used for, and it just kind of poof, it's gone. Hmm. And it's because we're not watching the ball, or we're not, we don't know what we're looking for necessarily in the in the restaurant industry. Um, so, I again, I'm, I'm kind of really offering this because you know, uh, I've been in law enforcement my whole life, so uh, I've dealt with a lot of criminals, I've dealt with a lot of thieves, and if I can keep, if I can keep them at bay or help keep them at bay, uh, help keep them, you know, their hand out of your till, uh, I would like to do that. And, uh, and I, I just offer up a lot of ideas on, you know, what to do when you've uh, noticed that there's something amiss. You're not really sure what it is. Well, what's your next step? And I try to walk them through that step by step. Craig, you find an employee that is dishonest. What do you do? Well, the main thing is to do the investigation properly. And uh, as the investigation progresses, you need to make a decision on how you want to handle 
the, that final outcome. So are you going to prosecute? Are you going to ask for restitution? Or, or, or what is it you're looking for on this investigation? The one thing you're probably definitely going to do is you're going to terminate this individual. And that needs to be done the correct way. And I say that because if you, if you do it incorrectly, you're, you're, then you're looking at a potential lawsuit. But more importantly, I think, than that is that we need to make sure that we're doing it correctly because uh, we can then go into the uh, unemployment realm and defend the company position on why we terminated the employee. Um, unemployment claims can go into the thousands and maybe up, upwards of nearly uh, $15,000 a year per employee that's terminated. So if you do it correctly, uh, if you get everything in writing, you have them write out their statement admitting guilt, uh, you're going to be golden when it comes to the unemployment claim. Those are thousands of dollars of savings for the company that, that really never get looked at. So a uh, very important part of it. Solid advice. The title of the book, again, is Guess Who's Eating Your Profits? The Manager's Essential Guide to Restaurant and Bar Loss Prevention and Investigations. Our author and former law enforcement specialist, Craig A. Whitfield, who's joined me from the state of Indiana in the United States. I've been here my whole life. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. This is a book that many people in management could certainly benefit from, especially if they're in the retail business. Uh, How do they get a copy of your book? Well, it's available on on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's on Author House. You can type in the book on Google, and it gives you a lot of other options as well. It's available in hardback, uh, softcover, ebook, and I'd love for everyone to buy it, uh, not only just because I know it would help them in being able to make their restaurant more a bar more profitable. There may be updates that need to be made. Is there a, a follow-up book coming? I was thinking maybe doing something in a couple of years. Uh, it's still The book is still fresh right now, and uh, maybe in a couple of years uh, I'm, I might have a little tweaking to it. But uh, the, uh, the interviewing and all the things, most of the things that are in there are time-tested, and they will, will help restaurant manager or owner uh, follow up on things that are going on in the restaurant. Thank you, Craig, for joining me today. Thank you. Glad I could be with you. Craig Whitfield has been my guest for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, she'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Healing Desert, In the Sands of Time, and the author is Mona Hadid, and Mona joins us now on Author Talk, all the way from Trinidad. Hello, Mona. Hi, Steve. 
How are you? Well, I'm doing great, and great to have you with us. Uh, congratulations for overcoming cancer, being a cancer survivor, and and that's what your book is. Well, that's part of your book, isn't it? To share with yes. people that kind of hope, that kind of faith. Yes, it is. It is. So when did you first discover you had cancer? When, when did that happen? It was in 1983. Actually, I call, I call it being in the prime of my life. I was just 30 years old. You know, and I thought everything was going great. Three beautiful kids. It was very... Uh, busy involved in my children's school and in my, you know, association back home. And, you know, life was beautiful, as I thought it was. And um, then all of a sudden, I just got up one morning with this pain under my arm. And, um, you know, I just thought it was something very simple. Went to the doctor and it just started getting worse and worse. And then, you know, um, strange enough, it, it, I just started breaking out with this severe, you know, itching that was very unlikely to the final diagnosis of Hodgkin's disease that I was finally diagnosed with. Um, I call that a blessing in disguise, that, that signal of itching, because I think it did save my life a lot, you know, getting an early diagnosis. And then, you know, I, as I said in my book, at that point, my whole world came crumbling and tumbling down. And um, I was sent abroad. They finally removed the gland that had um, emerged under my arm. And when it was tested, that was the diagnosis. And, and back in those days in Trinidad, you know, the medical was not, you know, very advanced. So, you know, we naturally would just travel abroad. And I went to Miami and there began my journey. And um, a journey of faith, journey of miracles, and as I shared in my book, I can personally say that I experienced a first-hand miracle um, with a diagnosis that changed from stage four cancer to uh, something not being there, a, a lump that they had seen in my stomach, as the doctor said, the size of his fist, and that disappeared in two days of deep prayer and community prayer and when I returned to start uh, treatment which was the final plan um, after they removed my spleen um, when I walked in the doctor just was astounded and looked at me and he said you know he took out the films and put it back up and he said what I thought was cancer cells in your stomach is air bubbles in your intestines and, but I knew as I walked in and he started to smile at me that God had heard my prayer and the prayer of my community. That really started my deep journey in faith because I went through a lot of suffering um, in the radiation of, you know, not feeling well and, you know, that whole feeling of where am I, being away from my kids, you know, because I had to stay away for about three months. I did six weeks of radiation. And it was in that time that I really um, prayed like I never prayed before and came to know to experience a personal relationship with the Lord. And, um, you know, that was a time where I read a lot of scripture, you know, spoke to a lot of people who gave me a lot of courage spiritually that, you know, I never had before, or I thought I had. Um, and, you know, that is where everything began, you know. Your book is, so, filled, your book is filled with 
prayers and poems and prose and photographs and it it's kind of like a, a diary as well yes yes well what happened there steve was you know i really strange enough only began writing a journal basically more from 1993 when my husband was diagnosed with cancer, um, a kidney cancer, and hairy cell leukemia. My actual journey of cancer was not fully written um, at that point, um, and my, I think my a deeper type of suffering occurred when I had to journey with my husband, uh, um, again, away from home, and um, he had countless types of cancers, and it was... In that time, being away from home and, you know, in a hotel and, you know, being there alone most times, because, of course, my family, my kids were still kind of young, and I would get up on a morning and just feel the burden of, of carrying it all alone, and that's when I started writing. So, you know, each morning it was a different experience, and I just wrote, it almost was like talking to the Lord in prayer, but writing, and that you know, helped me tremendously. When I find, and the quotes, and again, it was really at that period that when I would, say, you know, write my prayers or how I was feeling, I had different books with me that I carried, inspirational books, and I would open the book, and there was some beautiful quote that just sort of confirmed what I was feeling and, and lifted me up. And um, so, you know, and then the poems, uh, the um so a lot of that came from there, um, and the pictures, um, a lot of them were some of my past uh, pictures that have been on pilgrimage, and, you know, when I started putting this book together, um, a lot of things came back to me, like my actual journey of cancer. When I started writing the book, I realized that I had to start from the beginning, and then the sequence of my life and what I had experienced in my sufferings, my illness, my husband, a tragic incident with my daughter, um, all came together in putting the book, you know, into one. Would you like to share one of your prayers that means so much to you that you have included in your book? Yes, and I would read this particular prayer that I call Prayer in Time of Suffering. And that morning I got up feeling, you know, you know, very alone and empty. And, and this is what I, I wrote. Lord Jesus, sometimes my pain consumes me so completely that I feel as if I have little to offer the Father except my suffering. I know that you are with me in this, for you also knew pain, loneliness, and the sense of being abandoned. Yet I do not always reach out in prayer because it is so difficult for me to pray. I ask you to be with me even when I'm not aware of your presence and to join me in bringing my suffering to the Father as you brought yours to him in Gethsemane. Help me to place my whole self in the Father's hands as you did on the cross. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. That is just and beautiful. That, very, very, yeah. right from the heart. Yes. And, you know, that was a time, and, you know, Steve, I think we all can identify 
that there are times in our lives, you know, for whatever the experience is at the, at the moment, that we feel alone, we feel pain consumers, we feel anxiety, fears, and we just sometimes don't know where to turn or we feel as if we have to figure it all out. And this prayer was really, you know, uh, surrendering all my pain and loneliness and sense of being abandoned and placing it in the hands of the Father like we are called to do and we forget and, you know, meditating upon him on that cross, seeing him suffer the way we are suffering, but entrusting that pain to him, knowing that there will be victory because there is victory in the cross. Because Jesus died on that cross, took that suffering, and the resurrection, he rose from the dead, which is the rising for us in a human way out of our problems and situations. Part of your passion and drive of producing, uh, publishing your book is because you want to use the proceeds to go to set up a center in Trinidad uh, for children with disabilities and, of course, your granddaughter uh, struggles. Yes, yes. Um, And that, too, is, um, you know, again, where we look back and we see when when that's seeing that good things happen, bad things happen to good people, or things happen and there's a reason for it which we don't ever see right away. And uh, after that tragic incident with my daughter when she was pregnant with twins and she collapsed, which turned out to be a, a brain tumor that she had and we did not know, um, uh, we, as I said, nearly lost her and lost the twins because they wanted to abort the twins thinking it was another condition. Um, when she gave birth finally to those to the twins, um, the girl was affected at the time of her collapse with seizures, and she is a, a cerebral palsy um, little child. And it was through that that I, of course, um, had an experience of what parents go through with ch- children with disabilities. In Trinidad, we are very, very limited with um, proper facilities, and it is a great challenge. And through all of this journey with my granddaughter, I suddenly felt very motivated, and I knew it was, you know, inspired by, by God to try and set up a special needs center in Trinidad to help other parents and children to be, you know, get a chance in life. Um, so when I decided to write the book, Steve, I'll tell you initially that I, as I decided to write the book as a keepsake for my children and grandchildren to um, share in the experience of my life and their life because they were part of this. Um, I didn't have this thought in mind. And it's when the book was accepted at Auto House as publishing material when I got that letter, I just felt this very strong urge that all the proceeds of this book was going to go towards the setting up of this special needs center. And so I have um, dedicated all of the proceeds to, to this center, which we are still working on. I'm still trying to find a property, and we've been having different meetings to make sure we're on the right track. Um, and then as well as um, 
Steve, other things have evolved. Again, I have just brought out an inspirational line of cards that I have also um, going to put the proceeds towards the center. So I'm telling you this because, you know, I want to to encourage people and let them know that there is always a purpose in our life and a plan. And sometimes when things happen to us, it's not that God makes these bad things happen, but God is going to use it to bring about some good. And this is what I'm seeing happening in this journey of mine. So, Steve, you know, it's I could look back and say, you know, Lord, well, thank you for that experience because I am seeing a lot of good coming out of it, even though there are some challenges. Well, as we close out our discussion about your book, The Healing Desert in the Sands mm-hmm. of Time, could you share one of your poems with us? This was one that I had written, too, and I think it, it sums up what our life can be or should be, and it's called Harmony. Life was created in harmony, the harmony of two people's love, a harmony that comes from a love that two agree on. Life begins with harmony, a hope that the two knitted together will bear a bond that will last forever. Harmony is the thread that allows life to grow within each and every one of us. Harmony is the Spirit of God alive in each of us yearning to reach and touch those who surround us. Harmony calls us all to love in unity, hope, and care for each other. Harmony calls us to put aside our fears, anxieties, jealousies, and anger. Harmony is the Holy Trinity, the triune God, who united together form the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one. Let us live in the spirit of harmony that lives in each other for one another. And that would be heaven on earth. Very well done. Very well done, <laughs> Mona. <laughs> Thank, please, you. Please, Thank you, Steve. Please tell us, what's the best way to get your book? Well, um, there is um, the Auto House. If, if you go to the website, it's um, www.healingdesert.com. And it's available through Waterhouse as well as Amazon, Barnes & Nobles. There's a variety of places online that you can get the books. It's HealingDesertTT.com. TT stands for Trinidad and Tobago. www.HealingDesertTT.com is the book. And HealingDesertCards.com is uh, for the inspirational cards. Thank you so much, Mona, for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve, and I do appreciate, you know, your interest, and I do hope um, that, you know, every, they, if this was still an awareness and an interest. And uh, my website is www.healingdeserttt.com for the book, and healingdesertcards.com is for my inspirational cards. 